Hey, in the thick family, it's Julio Ricardo Varela. And we're continuing our best of series here on In the Thick, on ITT as we call it. So we're going to be dropping our favorite episodes over the last seven years, all month long. That's right, the entire month of March. So today, we're going back to 2019, when we talked with Feminista Jones, feminist writer and activist, about her book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. It's one of my favorite titles, The Tweets to the Streets. I love this conversation. Maria and I talked with Feminista about the influence of hip-hop on black feminism, the importance of mental and spiritual health, and how black women spoke out during the Me Too movement. And we know that black women are still excluded from white feminist movements. We recorded this conversation in 2019. This was two years after the rise of the Me Too movement, which of course was first started by Tarana Burke, who's a black woman and community organizer. But it wasn't until 2021 that the Me Too movement began uplifting the voices of black women when an initiative was launched for black survivors. So now more than ever, we need to continue uplifting the voices of black feminists who have been excluded historically, despite constantly being at the forefront of the feminist movement. All right, so let's get to this fabulous episode with Feminista Jones from July 30th, 2019. There are other Black women that think just like me. And if we've come together, then we can assert ourselves that we have the right to exist as Black, as women, as women, as Black. Hey, what's up? Welcome to In the Thick. This is a podcast about politics, race, and culture from a POC perspective. I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Ricardo Varela. And you know what? What? I'm a feminista. (laughs) You are. And we have, from Philadelphia, Feminista Jones. She's a social worker. She's a feminist writer. She's an activist. She has a badass new book out called Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. What up, Feminista? Welcome to The Thick. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Yeah, we're so excited. And so, first of all, you were born in Queens, yes. but you were raised in the Bronx. Shout out to the yes. Bronx. I was also raised in the Spooky Bronx. Down. So, that's yes. always a little Bronx Shout to Bronx. Out. This is our year. <laughs> yeah, we got, oh, hell we, got yes. we got some lead. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, Cardi it is our B year. and AOC. Yeah. It's all good. No, there's some things happening right now. People are finally going to give us the love we deserve. <laughs> you already shouted out your love for the Bronx, what it taught you, mm-hmm. specifically. The culture of hip hop, which, you know, I still think about the times growing up in the Bronx when that was happening. But I'm going to start with a very, very serious question. Okay. Maybe a little controversial, but I'm pretty sure I think I wonder, what you're going to say, but maybe what not. Your so here's be. my question Cardi B or Nicki Minaj? Oh, man, don't do that. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. So, so here's the thing. If you had asked me this six months ago, I would say, I don't know. But now I'm going to say Cardi B. And the only reason I'm going to say that is because I've grown uh, quite disappointed with how Nicki Minaj is responding to Cardi's fame. 
Yeah. And mm. I remember a time where we could have MC Light, Salt and Peppa, Queen Latifah, <sighs> and several others have records out at the same time, and it was all love. And now all of a sudden, you know, the industry has really made it so that there can only be one. And I find that uh, quite problematic. And I hate that Nikki seems to be kind of subscribing to it. And it's just, she's just not doing well right now. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to be Team Cardi for right now. I like stunning, I like shining, I like million dollar deals. Where's my pen? Bitch, I'm signing. I like those Balenciagas, the ones that look like. So you've mentioned some of the MCs already from the 80s and 90s, and I'm just curious, like, which one of these women MCs influenced your black feminism? And were there any specific like songs or lyrics that really, really spoke to you? You know, I think um, the very first one would have to be uh, Salt and Pepper. I treat a man like he treats me. The difference between a hooker and a hoe ain't nothing but a feast. So hold your tongue tightly. Wish you could be like me. You're popping all that mess only to stress and to spite me. Now you could get with that or you could get with this. But I don't give a shit because really it's none of your business. And they were coming out with music where... You know, they were like, it's my thing and I swing it the way that I feel it with a little seduction and some sex appeal. And you weren't really hearing a lot of that from women in hip hop thus far because women were still trying to prove themselves as um, good MCs. And to do that, you had to rhyme like the men did and men mm. weren't really rhyming like that. So you had these women who were coming out and talking about being like these working class women who were taking care of themselves. They were moms. They were just trying to just do what they wanted to do. And they were telling the world, we can do what we want with our bodies and how we want it. And and that was so important early on. And my mom was like fine with me listening to it because she was like, yeah, this is what we need. This is what we need. So, you know, salt and pepper definitely. And then when you had Moni Love and um, Queen Latifah doing Ladies First. Oh, uh-huh, yes. It's funny because I, I'm starting a new boutique this summer um, called Ladies First Home Decor because a lot of people don't know I'm really crafty. So I'm going to be selling like, like women's empowerment home decor and it's called Ladies First Home Decor and it's definitely um, a throwback to that and paying homage to them because Ladies first, oh, yeah. when they were entering into the sphere, which was totally male dominated, mm-hmm. they were like, well, no, ladies are going to be first now and you all step out the way. And that was definitely influential. But I got to say, like the magnum opus for me was um, Ooh on the TLC tip by uh, the group TLC. I tell everybody right now that's still one of the greatest works of feminist art ever. And they were talking about everything from domestic violence to sex positivity, sexual health, like all kinds of things. And, And they were way before their time. 
So you got all seriously modern on us and talking about hip hop, but I, I, really, I'm still geeking out here over here. But, <laughs> but you, you go, Maria. But, but, well, because what you did, feminista, with your book, really is you're you're laying out the truth about how black feminism um, is really at a core in terms of understanding not only black America, but the entire country. Mm-hmm. And you explain how black feminism dates back to enslaved black women. Mm-hmm. Um, you explain how in 1867, Sojourner Truth gave this address to the American Equal Rights Association. And she said, I suppose I am the only colored woman who goes about to speak for the rights of the colored woman. I want to keep the things stirring now that the ice is cracked. Mm-hmm. So, right. You know, I live in Harlem. So one of my inspirations is to walk by the Harriet Tubman statue. Um, And I think of her and the fact that, you know, her and Sojourner were able to dream, right? To Mm -hmm. to dream big, big, big dreams. Mm -hmm. Your book is kind of also like a short story of the internet and specifically how social media and Twitter in relationship to black women has been really important Mm -hmm. because it has allowed you and others to create community. So I'm going to quote you from your book. Mm -hmm. You say, I was reconciling traumas I'd experienced throughout my short life, mostly related to sexual abuse and assault. And it was around this time that I began experiencing my first major bouts of depression and suicidal ideation. I was craving nurturing, support, mentoring, and guidance that could only come from Black women who perhaps had more worldly experiences. So on the one hand, you know, we're calling out Sojourner and Harriet Tubman like they, they could dream these big dreams. But it's also this shit takes a toll mm-hmm. on us, on them, on our mental health. So yeah. can you talk about this intersection about mental health and black feminism and the use of kind of talking about this online? Yeah. Um, you know, thank you for reading my book back to me. I've forgotten most of it um but it's great huh that was she's like damn i'm a good writer <laughs> That's pretty powerful stuff there um you know i think it's i think it's always like important and i feel obligated always to remind people you know that sojourner truth never chose a side she didn't choose womanhood over blackness ever and i think that that is really what we're still trying to say you know 150 years later that we refuse to choose and a lot of people struggle with that because They want our energy. They see our labor. They see our work. They know that we are the ones that are putting in the work to to make progress happen, and they kind of want it for their side. And what we're saying is, no, we're not going to choose a side, and we're going to be who we are. And I think what's happened with social media and the Internet is that we have felt safer saying that. Um, because I do talk in the book about how back in the day I was very race first. I was, you know, I was one of those people that believed that, you know, it's got to be about black first and, Mm. you know, everything else will come. But I think that being online, a lot of us are realizing, you know what, we don't have to choose. There are other black women that think just like me. And if we've come together and we, you know, speak up, let our opinions be heard together, then we can assert ourselves that we have the right to exist as black, as women, as women, as black, you know, without having to choose. And I think that um, that's what Sojourner was doing back then and definitely 
she, you know, she wrote the blueprint for us. And I think with Harriet, what's really fascinating about her is that a lot of her momentous, you know, womanly type things have been erased or forgotten. You know, she's the only woman to lead a raid for the union. And, you know, she died a veteran that never got recognition, mm. you know. So yeah. we have to talk about those things. And that's what I wanted to do with the book is kind of, one, educate people, right, on what Black feminists have been doing throughout history, but also let them know that as we exist online, we are continuing that same work. We are operating in the same tradition. We're just using a different medium. Yeah. And and you are an early Twitter person. Mm-hmm. Like, if you know, you've been on Twitter for close to what, 10 years. Yeah, right? 10 years yeah. this May. Just hearing you, what you're saying sort of seeing this evolution of social, especially on Twitter, Mm -hmm. especially sort of like the hashtag movement, Mm -hmm. you know, things like solidarity is for white women and me too. We've seen powerful ones, but then you've created one, right? Mm -hmm. You created hashtag you okasis. Yeah. So, you know, what you're saying and, and making that historical connection between the historical roots and now using the new platforms. Mm -hmm. So how does it go from like the hashtag to the movement to change to a continuation of what you're saying. I mean, how do right. how do you navigate through all that? So I think everybody will have a different answer based on what their lives were like before social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I was an activist before social media. And for me, I saw platforms like Twitter and Facebook as tools that can be used to amplify the work that I'd already been doing. And a lot of us that are like Gen Xers and, you know, born in the, the <laughs> mid to late 70s, we all kind of feel that way because we were like, yeah, we've been out in these streets for a long time. Yeah. And it's part of why it was important for me to talk about both the tweets and the streets, because there is is a connection there. And so for us, coming to social media with the work we were doing was was one thing. But then you have some people who only encountered this kind of work through social media, which is also important. They tend to be a lot younger or maybe they are our age, but we're never exposed to these issues. So, you know, that, that connection is... Um, is super, super important. And when we talk about so-called hashtags and, you know, I get really bothered when people talk about, you know, hashtag activism and things like yeah. that, because it's like you're trying to be uh, reductive. And I'm like, there's a lot of power behind that, particularly for people who have been silenced, people of color, women, the disabled, the queer, you know, like immigrants, all these people that have long been silenced now have a level playing field. Right. You know, now social media, it's like all I have to do is turn on my computer or my phone and I can be heard. Whereas 30 years ago, you know, I was only talking to my circles because nobody else was listening. So I think a lot of people push back against so-called hashtag activism because it bothers them that people now have a voice and that they're now raising awareness about these ongoing issues that other people kind of were content to ignore. From Futuro Media and PRX, Latino Rebels Radio is an award-winning OG Latino podcast covering stories of the Latino experience that matter in the United States, the Caribbean, Central America, South America, and even parts of the universe. Lo que sea. Created for, about, and by Latinos. Join us every Thursday by subscribing to Latino Rebels Radio wherever you get your podcasts. So my understanding is that I'm a product of white feminism because that's what I was seeing like in the late 1960s. I'm a little bit older than you guys. Mm -hmm. So they were the first ones who I saw like out on the street, burning bras, kind of protesting. 
But when I think about my experience of kind of understanding womanhood in the United States of America and kind of backbone and strength that goes beyond, you know, let me get a job in nine to five and be like a man. And that's what feminism is. I really think about women of color and feminism as as really helping me to understand broader issues of rights of women. Mm -hmm. But let me ask you this, feminista. Can you talk about your experience with white feminists, how you see it and what we need to do or not regarding our intersection with white feminism? You know, it's it's really interesting. I think you have white feminism and then you have white women who are feminists. And I think that there's definitely a difference mm. and a line can be drawn because um, there are a lot of white women that I've worked with and worked alongside with who identify as feminists, but don't perpetrate a lot of the harm that comes from mainstream white feminism, as I talk about it in the mm. book. The ways in which mainstream white feminism functions is it's through a white supremacist lens. It's very difficult for them to fully include non-white women in this movement. Um, and that makes it inherently racist. But if it's racist, it can't be feminist by definition. And so what I'm arguing is that a lot of these women that we assign and say are feminist or that represent this kind of white feminist, you know, mainstream feminism, they're not technically feminist because feminism has no room for racism or classism or queer phobia or any of these things that these women often, you know, perpetrate. And so I have gravitated towards the white women who have been like, look, we know that there is, you know, oppression for people as women, but we also are very much interested in learning more about the experiences of women of color, of mm. lower income women, of queer women and and more. And those are the folks that I will spend more time talking to because they are genuinely interested in, in learning to be better and do better. I really have gotten to a point where I don't have time for the other stuff. You know what I mean? I know. Like, some people are just going to be stuck in their ways. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I'm focused more on these younger folks who are still trying to learn. And it's like, I'd rather they learn from me than learn from a knucklehead that doesn't understand why black women matter or why Latino <laughs> women matter. Very smart move. That's what I'm going to say now. I'm, it's better that you learn from me than from some knucklehead quoting exactly. Feminista Jones. I'm just saying. In the thing, exactly. Feminista Jones. I love it. And it's funny because I have so many of my supporters and followers who are just like, I've learned so much from you and you've been my entryway to feminism. And, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but yeah. then at the same way, I talk about salt and pepper the same way, you know, or I talk about TLC the same way. But what I, what I tell them all the time is I'm just one voice and I'm just one way of thinking about this. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that I'm always hundred percent right or that my way is the only way. And I encourage people to do their own research and their reading. And that's, again, that's what the book is about. I think that's a very human way to deal with social media is that, you yeah, know, I'm going to touch yeah. on the people that want to be with me and I'm going to worry about them yeah. and I'm going to be real with them. And I'm going to talk about TLC and I'm going to talk mm -hmm. about Latifah. And I'm going to talk about like my views on feminism. And I think that redirect I, be very direct and them. just be upfront. And I think that's if more and more people were like that and not caught up in the in the shit of like mm -hmm. being like a brand, I think the world would be different, but that's just me. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned brands because like I would not be where I am if I wasn't able to cultivate a, a brand of some sort, right? So, you know, it yeah. took several years of like being very intentional about certain things, like the colors that I use. Everybody knows me for purple or, you know, how <laughs> I true. 
all of my social media is the same exact name. And, you know, I don't carry business cards because I tell people just look me up. You know, you can Google me and find out how to contact me, everything you need to know. And so it took years to kind of build that up. And that's why I've been able to be seen as an expert in some areas or why they come to me and we want because... I've put that work into it, but at the same time, but it's time, real work. It's right? real, right? And it's I'm a not human being, <laughs> right? I'm not. I'm not peddling a product. Exactly. I'm just trying to like get people to think better, so that our future can be better. And if I can get paid to speak about it, that'd be nice. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. You know. <laughs> Uh, we have this idea that like activists are supposed to be poor and starving and, you know, on the brink of homelessness all the time. And I'm like, well, it'd be nice if you could pay me to yeah. do this, you know. And you say that black feminism is neither a battle against white women nor against black men. Mm-hmm. But you explain the divisions it causes with some black men. Mm-hmm. But we want to hear your thoughts on this some more. But specifically, this brings to mind the issue of when black women are being harmed. Mm-hmm. For example, with Surviving R. Kelly, yeah. which we recently did an In the Thick roundtable with Jamila Lemieux and April Rain. For a very long time, people looked the other way. And I think that, yeah. that this requires a massive moment of reflection about how we, the you know, society at large, right? Not just people who are not Black women and girls, but everyone needs to sit and think about how they value the lives of Black women and girls because most of our Kelly's fans historically have been Black women. Hmm. We're not the architects of these images of, of ourselves, you know, that say that we're, we're hypersexual or that our little girls are just tiny women. You mm-hmm. know, we, we suffer mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. but, but there's accountability for us too. Everyone failed these girls for a very long time. And you actually wrote a piece in Out Magazine about the docuseries as well. Mm -hmm. Is that an obstacle towards black liberation, not having that type of conversation? I think we have the conversations all the time. I just don't think people are listening. When you talk about which voices are silenced more, which are marginalized, it's going to be the women and the queer people and the poor people, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the divisions exist because... Over centuries, we've been sold this idea that being good means being like white people and that white people are the good people. So whatever they have, we should strive to get it, just kind of have it in our own color. Right. I often say that, you know, we have a a number of black men that are seeking white male supremacy just in black face. And what we struggle with is divesting of this idea that capitalism is somehow going to save us. Or, you know, you just had uh, Jay-Z and Diddy put out a photo together and Diddy says, it's not about just being billionaires, it's about leading revolution. And everybody's like, what the hell revolution are you talking about being a billionaire? No billionaire in this goddamn world is going to lead any revolution anywhere. BMWs for the people. (laughs) I got so angry reading that. I'm like, because if you were about revolution, you wouldn't have even amassed a billionaire. Billion dollars, right? Right. Gone by now. You know what I mean? And that's like people are getting at me. I was like, there's not even two thousand billionaires in this entire world, and you all are going so hard for these like wealth mongers. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? So it's like it's things like that, and it's like you know, a lot of times I I I try to build with brothers, and and a lot of them are super super great. I gotta say, but then there's the ones that are always like, well, you know, the key to black liberation is generational wealth, and I'm like, no, it's not. You know, or like you gotta buy a house. I'm like, no, you don't. You know, like yeah. I, I always push back because I'm like, you're still buying into this kind of white supremacist ideal of what it means to be a valuable human being. You have to work. You have to own property. You have to do these. And I'm like, no, 
We need to figure out people of color and the the browner we get, the harder we have to work. But we have to discover a new narrative of what success is. We have to set a new standard of what beauty is. Like we have to stop comparing ourselves. And that's where a lot of our divisions come up because we as black women, specifically black feminists, are calling out this idea that in order for you, black man, to achieve this American dream, you have to step on us to do it because mm-hmm. that's how yeah. it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? The same way white men step on white women to do yeah. it. Like, so you would have to do the same thing to us. And we're saying, listen, stop chasing that. We can figure out something else, but we're not going to figure out that something else until you let it go and stop harming us. Mm. And that's where those those friction conversations come. And then you've got things like the church trying to tell people that, you know, being gay is bad. And, you know, we have all these things that we're like fighting against when all we need to be doing is trying to affirm the humanity of everybody. As I think about my experience right now as a Mexican immigrant woman surviving Mm -hmm. the United States of America and the kind of targeting from this particular president, um, actually mm-hmm. on immigrant bodies, which can be black, brown, white, mm-hmm. any color. But is them whenever I I think about what I feel very personally, right? And then I'm always kind of centering like indigenous experience, black experience in this country to understand how violent Mm-hmm. And how horrible it can be, and yet how we survive, right? So mm-hmm. I love the fact that you talk about black girl magic. That's what we all have inside of us, right? Mm-hmm. The black women mm-hmm. in particular to be called out. And then you write in your book about, yes, you're very open about mental health, depression, how this comes at us. And I'm so thankful because we talk about that a lot here on In the mm-hmm. Thick and me personally as well. I didn't know this about your experience, though, Feminista, which is that mm-hmm. you actually turn to doing some pretty intense spiritual work and mm-hmm. you turn your spiritual attention um, to the Yoruba people um, mm-hmm. and Ifa, which some people know yeah. as Santeria. Yes. Yeah, and Philadelphia is like a super important hub of Yoruba and mm-hmm. Santeria. And just wondering about how you make that connection of the magic, the spiritual the fact that our bodies have been attacked in this way, that Mm -hmm. we carry this toxic stress. And yet within us, we have, in fact, this magic and it's ancestral. Mm. It's ancestral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what really helped me, I mean, I grew up in the Christian church, right? And I was that church kid, (laughs) Mm. you know, for most of my life in in the ways that many of, you know, Black and Latino folks in, in the United States have been. But I think that when I realized that it was no longer serving me and my spiritual needs, I sought something else. And what I realized for me was that ancestral divinity felt so much more empowering because I could look to the people before me and all that they put into the universe and I could draw from that. And so this kind of spirituality that honors our ancestors and, you know, talks about these divine beings that represent different elements of our lives. All of that just made sense to me. And it it came naturally to me. And what I've noticed on social media is that we have a lot of us are kind of returning to that. You see a lot more talk about astrology and the stars and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And and more like brujas. Yeah, like more of that. They are coming now. And most of them, you know, are actually really deep in the practice and trying to understand and, you know, either on the verge of some initiation or not. And I think that that's beautiful because what it does is it honors the divinity within us. Right. And I I just 
find that to be way more empowering just for me. And it's not a disrespect to anybody. I am so freedom of religion and faith. It's not even funny. But for me, that just worked better and it helped me connect with other Black women and Latino women because it's like we just have something in us (laughs) that has existed longer than any of the oppressions against us have existed. And if we can draw on that and if we can manifest that, I think that we can survive just about anything. So Feminista... I also love this other work that you write about Mm -hmm. in your book and in your life. You talk very openly about sexuality, about BDSM. Mm -hmm. You identify as a sex positive feminist. Um, Mm -hmm. You want to talk about, you know, really positive representation of black women within sex Mm -hmm. positively and BDSM culture, pop culture. Mm So I don't know anything. I'm revealing my age, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I don't know anything about BDSM culture. Okay. And I find it very interesting myself as a survivor of rape as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to me about centering sexual liberation within feminism and why you want to talk about this within the work of of your interpretation of feminism Mm -hmm. right now. You know, this is a topic that I try to push a lot. And I came onto the scene really as a sex positive feminist because my understanding, and this is this is what I've believed, is that so much of what we endure as women is related to people wanting to control our sex, our sexuality and our reproduction. And that is across, you know, everything that we talk about. Reproductive justice is all about that. So when we talk about this idea of Black women and brown women being able to control their own bodies, that is just antithetical to what America has always stood for. Because we were once like literally owned, right? And our job was to produce more labor by having more babies and to cook and to clean and to tend the fields and all those other things. Black women have always worked, right? But our bodies were never ours. And I think uh, Mary Frances Berry wrote uh, The Pig Farmer's Daughter and said that like, rape against black women wasn't even illegal to the late 1960s. You know, this is the idea that your bodies don't belong to you. And so for me, I see the opposite of that. The reclamation of that is, you know, sexual autonomy, physical autonomy. Mm -hmm. Who are you sharing your body with? Who are you hugging? Who are you kissing? Who are you touching? Who are you having sex with? You get to make all of these choices or you should be able to make all of these choices and not have that choice taken from you and not be shamed for it because that is empowering. And black women especially have been put into this place of your body only matters if you are reproducing more children for us or you're allowing us to make use of it sexually. So for me, coming into you know, this feminist space and realizing that sex positive feminism was very, very, very white. I said, well, no, no, no. We have to confront some Mm. of this because part of why sex positive feminism is so white is because there were white women who still didn't believe that black women should have bodily autonomy. You know what I mean? It's like they're sex positive feminists who want black women to nurse their babies. So, you know, I was like, nah, we have to add another lens. And then when you think of things like sexual abuse and, you know, right now a lot of people are talking about um, human trafficking and things like that. I'm like, well, you know, black women and children are disproportionately affected by this. So while you're out there as a white sex positive feminist woman championing, you know, sex workers, and I do too, you also have to realize that there is a very real danger, you know, that's happening that we need more black sex positive people to speak about because there's a nuance there and you all often overlook it while you're fighting for your rights, but it's kind of harming 
these black women and children who are being harmed. You know what I mean? That are being trafficked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a complicated thing. And I just felt like representation was necessary. And when we talk about like BDSM, for example, you were saying like you're dating yourself. I'm like, this is older than you. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, there's like a history. This is way older than you. Like, we're talking like hundreds of years older than you. But tell me why. Tell me, help me to understand. Yeah. Why it is. And by the way, I'm thinking about my own experiences and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to reveal what I'm thinking in my mind right now, but it has to do with sex or BDSM. But how does, in terms of being a black woman, how do you take bondage, domination, sadomasochism Mm -hmm. and make that into something that is sex positive and liberating? Because I kind of feel like, you know, when I was held down to be raped, Mm -hmm. that's like, oh, you know, I don't I don't I I, I don't react well to that. But you're saying there's something else. And I want to understand what that is. Yeah. So it's not about the act. It's about the intent. Right. So someone was, you know, and I'm sorry that you experienced that. And you know, I send love and healing to everyone. But the fact that this person did not have consent to engage you in that way is where the problem is. Like it could have been any act. They could have forced ice cream in your face. You didn't consent to that. So it's still wrong and it's still a violation. When you are actively engaging in, you know, this BDSM lifestyle, wasn't, which isn't always about physical, you know, dominance or anything like that. You are saying, yes, I want to do this. Yes, I'm making this choice for myself. Yes, I've negotiated the limits. I've made it clear. Yes, I have the right to say no. And I'm in a community that respects no more than any other community, right? So it's a safer space. And I'm not going to say it's perfect, but it's a safer space. All right. It's about autonomy. It's like I can say no right now and I know it will stop. The hands will go back up. People will back away. That is just how we are in this culture. And I think for people that have been, um, you know, victims of sexual violence, this becomes an empowering thing. And again, it's not always about the whips and chains. That is not, (laughs) although that's fun, it's not always about that. It's about being in a space where you are allowed to explore your sexuality in ways that may be condemned by mainstream or condemned by, you know, your your faith or religion. And you can be among people who are committed to not judging you, but to affirming you. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I think that, you know, it, it still remains an alternative lifestyle because people don't like that. They don't like that there's a way for people to have sex or in, engage in intimacy on their own terms. That really makes some people uncomfortable. That's That's liberating. It makes people uncomfortable. You know, when we talk about rape culture, the core of rape culture that really bothers me that we don't talk enough about is the idea that boys and men are taught that coercion is sexy. That if a woman, if you're having sex with a woman, if she voluntarily wants to have sex with you, something's wrong with her. So we Mm. teach boys that you need to coax it out Mm. of them, that you need to coerce it, that you need to convince them, that you need to play all these games. That is the cornerstone of rape culture right there. And here comes BDSM and this alternative lifestyle that says, oh, no, nobody has to coerce anything. Right. You are perfectly fine saying that I want to do this and everybody else around you is like, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you take it back to hip hop like you, you love hip hop. So let's talk about, you know, Tupac. He says, I don't want it if it's that easy. That is a principle that so many live by. This is what I love. This is why I'm a hip hop head. You just totally <laughs> did the lyric. And you're like, yep, point made. I got it. That's it. You got it. You, you yeah, see yeah. what I'm saying? And so when we talk about this idea of like, oh, calling a girl a hoe because she likes having sex. 
or this new thing, it's kind of moved. I've noticed among the young people, you don't want a girl that has too many likes on her Instagram or too many followers because she's for everybody. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like there's still this, this idea that women's bodies should be controlled by men. Even if they're not into men, (laughs) their bodies should still be controlled. And so what BDSM does and what being sex positive does, it tries to shut down all of that and return bodily autonomy to people it's been stripped from. Mm. Damn. I learned a lot there. But listen, I'm going to totally detour this because we're trying to do, you know, we are a political show. We want to ask our guests throughout the year about the 2020 presidential election mm, mm-hmm. and with so many democrats running and oh my gosh who's not running who is not <laughs> right running? exactly i'm gonna run i was just in iowa yeah, it's feeling good I'm gonna gonna run. Run. just announced <laughs> there's a historic number of women candidates including yeah. a few women of color so we just wanted to get your take on this wave of women candidates like what does it mean in your perspective well what i love about it is the fact that they feel like they can Um, Because that hasn't always been the case, right? When any woman decides to run for political office, she's immediately going to face opposition. She's one, she's not going to get the same financial support. She's not going to get the same community support. And she is opening her entire life to being examined in ways that men will never have to endure. So for any woman to come out with those three conditions and still decide to run, I think it's amazing. I don't care what your political leaning is. I think that it's amazing that you can do it and you feel like you can. With that said, you know, I think it's a referendum on, you know, our current government and what government has been like for the last couple of years. You've got all these like pretty much old white men still trying to decide what life should be like for the rest of the country. And it's moved so far. I can't even say it's like right wing. It's moved just off the stratosphere. Like it's into the stratosphere. It is such a total like. What the fuck? Like, I, I just don't, you know, it's 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 unlike anything that we have seen, I would say, in modern times. And I think that the women are coming up and they're like, look, we've let these men do this for so long. Maybe we have the key to something different. And I think that that's amazing. I think all candidates are problematic. All candidates have their issues. The only thing I want to make sure is that we're holding everyone to the same standards. So if you're going to attack Kamala Harris for having an affair or whatever, then you need to attack every man that has ever had an affair in the Mm -hmm. same way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're going to talk about Alex's uh, lipstick, well, then talk about the men that wear ill-fitted suits like Bernie Sanders. Like if you're going to talk about. (laughs) Let's talk about his hair, for example. Yeah. And his glasses. You're going to pick apart the like silly things and it needs Mm. to be spread across and everybody needs to get the same thing. In terms of my own, you know, political beliefs, I'm I'm so completely radical. No one's ever going to fully represent (laughs) what it is that I want. You know, I want breakfast all day at every restaurant. (laughs) That should be a standard. You I know? think your platform is beca- is I, coming I, into focus now. I, I might change my political leaning because of the breakfast. Uh, <laughs> because that's important. We yeah, should be totally. able to have breakfast anytime. Have... I had a, I put this on Twitter. I had a server say, "No, we servers don't want this because lunch menus have less items, and this is bad for restaurant <laughs> workers." I was like, "Oh my gosh, okay, I'm not even Twitter serious." Right <laughs> but I'm already facing pushback on my fake platform. Like, what is going on? Only on Twitter would you get pushback on yes, breakfast every day. Somebody, somebody said that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going to move on to our final segment, which we call Bingeworthy. 
are basically what you're binging on. So the question, Feminista, is something that you've watched, read, that you just can't stop thinking about, that you're binging on. It doesn't have to be journalism. Mm. It could be a book, a poem, a Twitter thread. A hip-hop song. I am binging on The Resident. I know what you're thinking. But I've known Dr. Stewart and Nurse Colby for years. I've never seen either of them treat a patient differently because of race. People can have unconscious bias. You're absolutely right. This can't happen again. Um, it's a, it's a medical drama, and I have not really watched a medical drama since House, and before that, it was ER, wow. um, because okay. I get I get really annoyed with all of the the talk about shit. I don't know. I'm not math or science. I don't give a damn. But <laughs> the resident is great because of how diverse the cast is. It's got Malcolm Jamal Warner plays like this super specialist surgeon. You've got this, um, and I forget the sister's name, but she plays like this resident surgeon. You've got um, you've got people of all sizes. They've talked they talked about like how black women are ignored with pain. They've talked about huh. how fat women are ignored with pain. Wow. They have wow. talked about so many things. One of the main residents is an Indian guy. Like it's amazing how diverse it is, and it's so well written. Um, so I've been binging that, um, that and the, the book that I just, I zoomed through and couldn't put down is called, um, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. And that's by, uh, Damaris Hill. And I just did a talk with her. And so I was reading her book ahead of the talk and it focuses on black women incarceration from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Mm. Mm. Wow. She takes these stories of women that you've probably never heard of, many from Philadelphia and why they were incarcerated. Some of it was like because of domestic violence, because of, you know, psychosis, whatever. And then she writes a, an accompanying poem to speak Ooh, to their stories. Wow. And so you get you get this little tidbit of history, you get a photo, and then you get this poem that kind of brings them back to life and gives them a voice. And I've never read anything like this before. And I zoomed through it. It was fantastic. And I was just like, yes. Feminista Jones, thank you so much for everything that you bring into the world. Um, you're the author of the new book, Reclaiming Our Space, How Black Feminists Are Changing the World from the Tweets to the Streets. Thank you so much for joining Julio and me on this edition of In the Thick. We're so thankful. Oh, thank you for having me. This is awesome. Thank you very much. I respect you so much. You're so amazing. Thank you. Oh, that's so nice well, of you. Back at you. Back at you for sure. Uno, dos, I'm Maria Hinojosa. And I'm Julio Arcalo Varela. And remember, go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us because it really does help. Also, remember, you can listen to In The Thick on all major podcast platforms. Check us out on the web at inthethick.org. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at In The Thick Show. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. In The Thick is produced by Noor Saudi, Oscar Fernandez, and our New York Women's Foundation Ignite fellow, Daniela Tello Garzón. Our editorial director is Fernanda Santos. Our audio engineering team is Stephanie LeBeau, Julie Caruso, Gabriela Baez, and JJ Carubin. Our marketing manager is Luis Luna. Thanks to Raul Perez for recording me. The music you heard is courtesy of Nacional Kept and ZZK Records. We'll see you on our next episode, dear listener. Gracias. Ciao. Nos vemos. Peace out, y'all.
Hola, ¿cómo están? Hi, ah, sweetie. Like oh, oh, oh. Mm. Tú estás hablando español. <laughs> She's oh, dropping sí, Spanish. Claro. I love the fact that you just said it like, like you sounded like, ta, like a Mexicana that sounds boricua. Tú estás hablando español. Because I'm from the Bronx. So Me too. It's hard to not grow. It's hard to grow up in the Bronx and not speak I know. Spanish. It's a sub suburb of Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Futuro Media or its employees.